This morning we continue in our Advent series talking about what are what we can expect as believers in a relationship with Jesus. What can we expect from our gracious God? And the season of Advent tells us a lot about that. And today we are looking at how we can expect love and in particular how our names are changed in response to the grace of God. Our scripture this morning comes from the gospel, uh, not the gospel, the book of Isaiah, excuse me, the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. We read there a prophecy of Isaiah. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings, your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. And your land, Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be joined to him. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. When I was a toddler, I guess about Sam's age, uh, my college-aged uncle, uh, who is the youngest brother of my mother, uh, took it upon himself to help me learn the names of basic objects around the house. He figured if he could teach me the names of things I might want or need, he'd be doing his older sister a favor. If I was hungry, I could, use, I could tell any adult using the power of language, of words, of names, that I wanted Cheerios or graham crackers or whatever. And so with deliberate care, my uncle gathered me in his arms, walked me to the nearest lamp, and calmly declared, Blake, this is a banana. (laughs) This is a banana. Say it with me. This is a banana. Uh, Then, avoiding other adults, he walked me into the kitchen. He pulled out a cup and said, this is a puppy. Whenever you are thirsty, just call out for puppy. That's all you need to do. Uh, It's a puppy. Just shout it. Shout it. And you'll get a drink. It'd be great. Uh, He did this throughout the house, uh, naming things uh, in the wrong way for the benefit of his older sister. So uh, he, in his arms, I learned that the sink was where I slept and I should go to the bathroom in the car. Okay. So he thought this was very funny. Uh, My mom... And dad did not think it was as funny, but uh, my parents intervened really before the lessons sunk in. I only saw him, at, you know, big holidays, things like that. Um, but ever since then, uh, I re- I've remembered that names matter. If used accurately, names describe both what's being, uh, what's being named, but also its purpose. Take the word astronaut uh, as an example. Two Greek words, astro and nautes. Are, are mashed together to tell us that an astronaut is a, someone who sails in the stars, a star sailor. The native people of New Zealand gave their tallest mountain the name Eraki, or cloud piercer, because it felt that it was so tall it tore open the very sky. If we say that we have a Christmas tree, we know that it's a tree that we have at what season? 
Christmas, right? Now that's kind of an easy one. Uh, Names tell us what we need to know about something or someone or somewhere. It describes what we're uh, looking for. But as we all know, names aren't always accurate. Uh, We see this in the English language especially. Jellyfish, right, is actually not a fish, nor is it made of jelly, right? Neither of those things. A silkworm is a caterpillar. A boxing ring is actually a square. Uh, French horns originated in Germany, and French fries were invented in the United States, right? They're not always accurate names. Misnamed things uh, can create confusion that can make communication even more difficult. But if we're honest, our real frustration that comes with our given names and the names that we give ourselves, the names we might call ourselves, the name we, names we call others, our names rarely reflect exactly who we are. Sometimes, usually in fairy tales, the names of people are uh, like explicitly accurate. Snow White was named that because she was the fairest in the land. Cinderella slept near the fireplace, right? Cinderella, she lived near the fireplace. Historically, last names might reveal your family's occupation, like carpenter or hunter, On some level, it would be easier if our naming system resembled the Native Americans whose names are changed at meaningful moments or medieval knights where a name details the heroic tasks and character of a knight or a king. Imagine introducing yourself to friends or family not just with your name, but a list of your accomplishments and virtues. It would take a very long time at parties to say, hello, my name is... (laughs) Just take a long time. It might feel awkward, but it actually would give us a better understanding of the people around us that say, oh, yes, you went here and you've done this. And this is what you and this is what was your profession. And this is what you've done in your life. It might be nice to have our names honestly reflect who we were and what we did, because it would provide an honest reflection of our identity and and give us a short glimpse into our history. But I also wonder if we had the freedom to name ourselves, whether the name we choose for ourselves would bring us shame or pride. Sometimes we might be tempted to emphasize our good points and skip over the mistakes. Could just one name encompass our entire life and being? Would we include names people have called us over the years or given to the labels that others have given to us? Every relationship and responsibility, every decision and choice has left us with a thousand different names we're constantly trying to live into or avoid. Some names we we must come to terms with if we are going to flourish in this life, but others maybe need to be ignored or erased or forgotten. Names help us understand our foundational identity, who we are. But what is our real name? For most of us, answering that question takes a lifetime of work and discernment to answer the question, who am I? But in our passage today, we discovered the answer God gives to his children is equally the worst and also the best news that humanity has ever known. So we're going to talk about the hard part first, the difficult part. So happening toward the end of the prophet Isaiah's life, this word of hope, this prophecy, 
comes to the people during the time of exile, which was a season of deep and profound despair. Remember from last week, this, this exile lasted about 150 years at least. When Isaiah first began to prophesy to God's people, he warned a wealthy and prosperous but sinful nation to repent of their sins and turn back to the Lord. If they did what their Lord desired, the relationship between God and his people would have gotten back on track. It would have been restored. It would have moved toward, uh, not toward deeper animosity or confusion, but, but redemption and reconciliation. But when they ignored these warnings and continued in their sinful ways, God allowed them to suffer a complete reversal of fortune so they might understand not just who he was, but who they were without him. When the gracious hand of God departed from his people, their neighbor Babylon invaded and conquered uh, their nation. This neighbor destroyed armies in cities. They tore apart families and forced most of the people in their country into slavery in a foreign land. They took them back to Babylon. Now, their lives had been so twisted and turned around so emphatically, the very name Israelites became synonymous with a nation that had been wiped off the map, a people that had been crushed by their circumstances. Instead of being children of a merciful father, they were now exiles without a home. Every time their masters addressed them as slaves, reminded them of what they lost, of how they had become a nameless people. Like a bride without a groom, like a summer day without the sun, like a garden without flowers, they lived into the name, into their names of their destruction. But here's the important thing. They hadn't been given these new names on accident. Their experiences weren't random, but a direct consequence of their own choices. They had chosen their new identities as forsaken and desolate people. The moment they rebelled against the Lord to pursue their own pleasures. The God they worshipped would never have left them alone in a broken and evil world to wither under an oppressive empire. But when the people rejected his name... Their rebellion led them away, not just from their literal physical home, but their identity as his children. They wrongly assumed they could make a name for themselves, that they could become warriors and conquerors and kings. They could be self-made men and women that demanded the respect of the world. But they would never find any name as beautiful as the one God originally gave to each of them. Child of God. Beloved child of God. Sadly, we fall into the same pattern today. Despite all the names we carry with us and all the names people have given to us, despite the names that we call ourselves, one name dominates the hearts of all humanity. No matter what we have done or accomplished, No matter our successes or relationships, one name colors and influences our whole lives. The universal name that is written deep within our souls remains the same. We are each a rebel. We are each a sinner. 
We know this because of our own actions, because of our own choices. This one label, this persistent tendency to go our own way, despite the open invitation of our good father to follow him, haunts our every thought and action. Charles Spurgeon wrote that as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. In our sin, we too take on the names forsaken and desolate, because we too have wandered away from our God. We too are eternally separated from the God who loves us. But the Lord speaks through Isaiah to offer humanity hope. Here Yahweh promises his children that someday they would be given new names. One day everyone who met them would recognize they belonged to their God, not because of what they had done or left undone, but what he had done for them. Someday the people of God would be united to the Messiah in such a profound way, their entire identity would be transformed. They wouldn't gain just a new label, but become an entirely new creation. The Lord uses the language of marriage in Isaiah 62, 4 and 5 to reflect the power of this coming union, of this joining together of God and his people in a new way. Instead of a forsaken bride, the people of Israel will be called Hephzah, which is translated, my delight is in her. Instead of desolate, they will be called Beulah or married. The Lord expands on this image in Hosea uh, 2 when he says, in that day, I will betroth you to me forever. I will join you to me forever. I will join you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Joining his people to himself in such an intimate way ensures that every barrier that blocks a relationship with him is removed forever. If we are cut off from God in our sin then our God desires to remove sin, to restore our connection with him. And he accomplishes this miracle on the cross. Because there we see how God exchanges our names with his. Because Jesus, he takes our name and he gives us his own. He becomes the sinner while we become the righteous. He dies a death that we deserve while we gain eternal life. At the cross, we are given the name of Jesus himself. Instead of lost, we are called found. Instead of sinners, we are called redeemed. Instead of children of wrath, we become children of God. Paul writes in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child of God. Our names are changed because of what Jesus has done for us. 
He transforms orphans lost in the world into children of God. The new name we find at the cross joins our lives to the Father and changes the status of our souls forever. But this new name is, isn't just something we call ourselves. It has inherent transformative effects. We're not only claimed by God as his children, but moved by the Spirit within us to become more and more like Jesus every moment of our lives. Our God doesn't only rescue us, but he transforms us into children worthy of the Savior's name, whose choices and actions and behavior reflect his love and grace. He wants us not just to take his name, he wants us to embody his name in our lives. He took on our humanity so that humanity might take on his own divine nature. Early church father Irenaeus wrote, through his transcendent love, our Lord Jesus Christ became what we are, so he might make us to be what he is. That is is how deep the transformation goes. That is how deeply our names are changed in Jesus. Having been given a name at the cross and empowered through the Spirit, there is yet a further step in our faith. Called a new name by our gracious God, we are also called to live into the name itself. Of course, this takes time. For we are accustomed, we're used to living and moving in darkness, in a dark world. We still slip into sin. None of us are yet perfect. And evil constantly beckons us away from God. And we might listen to the names that other people have given to us. We might also uh, assign ourselves names out of arrogance or insecurity. We might even be tempted to listen when the great accuser calls us by our former name of sinner, of rebel, of someone who has walked away from God. Because... Satan wants to remind us of how far we still far we still fall short when it comes to following Jesus. We carry those names with us. But the reality of the cross is that when he calls us his children, he has already begun to transform our hearts and minds, changing our habits and reshaping us into his image. The growth that occurs after Christ bestows his name upon us is a lifelong journey of trial and error, but one that's made possible by Christ's presence in us, who always teaches and guides and transforms us into what Martin Luther calls little Christs, reflections of the greater Christ. In another way, it's kind of like this. When I was a sophomore in high school, I I joined the wrestling team. Okay, that might maybe surprise you. You might look at me and think I don't exactly have a killer, you know, spirit. Um, uh, according, uh, so I joined the wrestling team, went through, you know, training, all that sorts of stuff. And according to the coaches, I was now one of them, a wrestler. I was on the team. I wrestled. I did, you know, went to matches and did all those, all, all those things. When people would ask me in the hallway if I was a wrestler, I would answer, yeah, I am. I, I, I'm on the team. Yep. Uh, but inside... 
inside. I would also answer, no, not really, because even though I was on the team, I didn't consider myself a wrestler, not, not yet anyway. I had hardly, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to even practice right. I was still learning the moves. I was still training to get in shape. I was still working hard to fit in and be a part of the team. And that took time. It took about a year for me to get up to speed, another year to feel like I'd earned the name itself. But with lots of help and practice, I was eventually able to live into my name as a wrestler. By the time I graduated high school, I felt like I was more of a wrestler. I said, yeah, I guess I do that because that's part of who I am. The wonderful news we hear whispered about in Isaiah, promised in Advent and declared in the manger is that Jesus helps us in this kind of transformation, not from the outside in, but the inside out. Andrew Purvis, who's um, a reformed uh, theologian, one of my professors at seminary, says it this way. He says, union with Christ is not an imitation of Christ, a life of following the example of Jesus. Rather, the Christian life is a participation in Christ's righteousness and holiness and mission through the bond of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Jesus claims us, we are given more than an instruction manual on being like Jesus, although we have that. We are promised the instructor himself walks with us and teaches us how to be like him every day of our lives. Brothers and sisters, our names are changed when we recognize what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and we are given a lifetime to live into the name that he gives us as children of God. Every moment is a chance, as Isaiah proclaims, for our righteousness, our own lives, to go forth as brightness and our salvation to go forth like a burning torch. When we understand what Christ has done for us, we become a people expecting to receive not only the love of God, but share it with the world. When we live into the name that Christ has given each of us, we shall be a crown of beauty and the hand of our God and the glory of God. The great mystery of the Christian faith is that the glory of God is made known to the world when sinners like you and I are not known by our mistakes, nor the name we give ourselves or the names people give us, but by the grace and love of our Savior Jesus moving in and through us. When we live like that, the whole world shall know our name, that we are Christians. That we are those who were loved by God, yes, but more importantly, are learning to love like him too. Hallelujah. Amen.